convince us this morning that we are in your hands and nothing can take us from you. Amen. Let's be seated together.
his and he is mine. Are, are, there, are there any better words than that? Uh, you'll see that uh, there's three uh, sections that I'll be reading this morning. I'll have a little pause in between each section, mainly so I can find my place. This is the word of God. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And, I, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against the, these except Michael, your prince. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who was who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. I'm back. <laughs> that was not what that was intended for. <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to apologize to Rich for having to skip around so much. Um, but uh, it's a long section. We're going to do actually 10, 11, and the first four verses of 12. So it's going to be a big sermon. So I do apologize up front, but I'm going to try to make it bearable. Um, with that, I want to invite children to Children's Church. Um, your teacher will meet you out in the hallway, and uh, just an age-appropriate place to learn the Word of God. And so, uh, as they're going, uh, let me pray for us before we turn to the Word. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Lord, what beautiful words. What a great truth. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust our circumstances. We don't trust our money. We don't trust our power and position in Christ alone. And so, Lord, I pray that you would root that truth deep in our hearts. 
we have a sure and a firm anchor in who Jesus Christ is. And let us turn there. And Lord, as the world changes and swirls around us, it would be easy to get swept up in the, the, all the turmoil that's going on, the, the um, rise and the fall of the pandemic and the return and, and politics and economics and all of those things. And Lord, we, in the middle of that storm, we have a sure and a steady rock that we hold to. And thank you for being with us. Lord, as we look to changes within our church, um, we're watching the Come Rise leave and uh, we're searching for a new person to lead us in worship. And Lord, we trust in that, that you will provide, that you have somebody in mind who is the right person to help us in that area. And so would you lead us to that person? We pray that that, that person's heart is being stirred now and that we will find each other because it's your church. And also, Lord, we pray for the Crumb Rise as they go. There's a lot happening for them over the next couple of weeks and uh, many, many things. And Lord, I thank you that uh, you've given Ramey opportunity to tell stories about miraculous ways you've provided so far. Would you continue to do that to strengthen his faith and Jen's faith and, Ky uh, and, and Kyla's faith and also, Lord, strengthen our faith too through those messages. Um, Lord, help us to, to uh, remember that you are active and involved in our lives. And Lord, we pray for Kayla as she gets ready to go to college. There's a big change in her life. That's huge. Um, that, that step from 17 to 18, from high school to college, is a, is a gigantic leap and uh, kind of a rite of passage. And we pray, Lord, that you would go with her, that you would provide for her, uh, a church family to engulf her, to hold her up, to, to strengthen her while she's studying, a friend who would help her walk with Christ. And so be with her. And Father, we pray also for... Uh, Kyle and uh, Anne-Marie's wedding that's coming up. What a joyous moment uh, to celebrate. We pray that that would be a blessed union and a beginning of a, a new life together and in which they can grow in Christ, grow in grace, and serve you more. Uh, Father, we pray for our upcoming trip to paradise, this relief effort to help clean up and, and just help this, the church in paradise. Lord, would you bless us as we go, give us safety uh, on the way, safety while we're working, and, and safe trip home. And uh, Lord, more importantly, we pray that uh, our presence there would be the aroma of Christ in the middle of a burned out town. Uh, we want to go as, as ambassadors. And so go with us, we pray. And Lord, we turn now to the end of the book of Daniel to a big piece of scripture. And Lord, Holy Spirit, I cannot do this on my own. This is not something that's within my power. And so I call on you, would you come and help us this morning? Lord, would you speak your word to your people clearly and accurately? And Lord, don't let me get in the way of that. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, had a couple of good preachers here, I heard. <laughs> I, I, got to, I got a chance to listen to Bob Burris' message. I haven't had a chance to listen to Dan's yet, but I've heard his was really great. Um, I, I just love Bob. I mean, I grew up in the faith under him, so I'm so glad to have him so close to be able to preach for us. Um, but I'm back now, and so we're going to dig back into the book of Daniel. Just as a way of reminder, we approach the book of Daniel and we ask, how do we live faithfully as God's people in a world that is not faithful? Daniel was a faithful Jew in Babylon of all places. And so we're looking to him to see how do we live faithfully. And so that's, that's kind of the theme of the book. And this last section is going to help us in that way as well, um, not surprisingly. It's a big chunk of scripture. Um, I was really, I'm glad I had two weeks to work on it because I really was in turmoil over how do I handle this? Because it's one long dialogue. It's one long speech. 
And if you break it up, it feels artificial. And if you try to do the whole thing, it's too much. And so what I was doing that two weeks I had off was kind of looking around, what's the theme? What's the purpose? What's the point of this? And um, since I'm a little dense, I didn't get it right away. But God was faithful and he came through. It, he, it's right there in the word. Verse one ends with, and the word was true and it was a great conflict. There's a footnote in the ESV that says it was true and it was about a great conflict. Uh, the word about's not there, but it's kind of inferred. And so I think what this last vision that Daniel receives is, the theme of it, the point of it is conflict. And where this goes, where this vision goes, is it, it winds up with the consummation of conflict. How does it all come together? What does it all resolve in? It's like we, Ramey is, and I've talked about this before, you hit a chord and it's off, and then you do the resolution, you drop that last note in. And so that's what we're looking at is that, that chord is off and it's just kind of ringing and we're waiting for that, that last note to fall in. That's where we're heading with this is the consummation, the res resolution of conflict. Now to get there, we've got to deal with some conflict. And so verse, uh, chapter 10 verses one through 12 is really about the conflict inside us, the conflict we face. And then chapter 10, verse 13 through the beginning of 11, it's conflict in the heavenlies. It's a spiritual conflict that's going on. And then verse, uh, chapter 11, almost all of chapter 11 is about conflict in the world. Um, I'm gonna summarize a whole bunch there. We're not gonna go through all of that and I'll explain why when we get there. And then finally from verse 36 through 12, four, it's the consummation. It's how does all that come together? So that's where we're going to go this morning. So let's start with the conflict inside us. Look at poor Daniel. Verses 2 and 3. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth. I did not anoint myself at all for three full weeks. So why is he in mourning? Why is he so sad? Why would he... he now, it says he didn't eat delicacies, so he probably ate very meager rations, probably like bread and water for three weeks, but he didn't anoint himself. Um, they didn't bathe as regularly then as we do, and so they would pour oil on themselves to, to kind of anoint themselves and smell nice and, and, uh, and have a nice shine and that kind of thing, and he does none of that. So he's really in distress. This is, this is Daniel internally in turmoil. Why? What might be the reason for that? Well, the thing began with in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he had issued an edict that Jerusalem was to be rebuilt. And so Ezra takes a group of people and they go back and they begin to work in the temple to rebuild it, to clean it up. Well, by this point, the third year, it appears the work has stopped. Ezra 4, verse 4. Then, four and five, I'm sorry. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what's happened is the people around them in, in the area of Palestine begin to oppress and, and resist the people who are building. And so... It's possible, it's probable that word has gotten back to Daniel, the construction stopped. Now, Daniel is really frustrated by this. Remember last chapter, he started by saying he was reading in the book of Jeremiah, the 70 years was up, it was time. And he starts praying, Lord, let's go, let's rebuild Jerusalem. 
And so it starts and it gets going for a few years and now he gets word it stopped again. And so that's probably why he's fasting. That's probably why he's praying is he's distressed because God's promises aren't coming through. And what's going to happen? So he, he's in that kind of a state of mind. And then he says on, in verse 4, On the 24th day of the month, as I was standing on the banks of the great river, that is the Tigris. So on the 24th day of the first month, he's standing on the banks of the Tigris. He's been fasting for two weeks. So that means, um, so it's three weeks. I'm sorry, I thought so. Three weeks, so 21 days. So he's been fasting since about the fourth day of the month. What happens in the first month on the 14th day? The Feast of Passover. He's fasting through Passover. Passover is this great feast of the deliverance of Israel from, uh, from Egypt. And now he comes to this point where he's hoping that his people will do, be delivered from Babylon, and they're not. And so he fasts through the Passover because he's, he's anxious for God to, to be faithful and to, um, to get this, this project finished. So what happens, the response is, God again sends him an angel. He, he's done that before. Verses 8 and 9, he sees this angel and he says, So I was left alone with this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fright, or fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So Daniel starts in a state of, of, of mourning, of sorrow, of, of grief. He is depressed. He is anxious about what's going on. An angel shows up, and the very next thing he does is fall on his face in fear. Now he says in verse 8, my radiance appearance was fearfully changed. I don't think his, one of the way that the other Bibles translate that is his face became uh, pale. Uh, because I don't think his, his appearance would be radiant if he's been fasting for 21 days and hasn't anointed himself for 21 days. He was probably a little bit less than radiant. So it's possible that the other translations get it. His face became pale. But that's one way to say it. But the word face isn't there. What the word literally is is my splendor or majesty became destruction. And so it's possible that he's talking about his face fell. It's also possible in a poetic kind of way, he may be talking about his splendor. The splendor of the temple in Jerusalem is in ruin. And so that's what's weighing on his heart. So that's another way to approach that. Um, there's a note in the ESP says, my splendor was changed to ruin. And so it's possible that that's, that's why I kind of lean towards the, the Jerusalem uh, theory for why he's, he's mourning. And so when the, when the angel approaches him, he falls on his face in a deep sleep with his face to the ground. He's knocked out. It takes four touches from the, or three touches from this angel to get him back on his feet, to get him his strength again. In chapter 10, he's on all fours. He gets up a little bit, but he's not standing up. In verse 16, he's able to speak. He can address the angel. And then in verse 18, he's, his strength is finally restored. In, in verse 11, that's when he gets his, he stands up, but he has no strength and he's not able to speak. So it takes a while for him to recover. It takes a while for him to get to the point where he can engage in, in this vision. So remember his, his state of mind. What's going on in Daniel? Feel Daniel for a moment. He's anxious about God's promises. 
He's terrified by the answer he's got from this angel. He is an emotional mess at this point. So it brings up this question, is it possible for a believer, a true born-again believer in Jesus Christ, to be anxious, depressed, sad, lonely, worrying? I, every single person in this room had better say yes, because <laughs> we all have been there, right? We, we have all felt that, but sometimes we, we get this impression that we shouldn't feel that way. And, and it's, it's not true. It's biblical. For, God made us with emotions, and so it's okay to be emotional. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not meant to be stoics where we just don't feel anything. So when, when we are dealing with that with ourselves, with anxiety or fear or depression, when we deal with that with ourselves or, more importantly, when we deal with that with others, we need to remember it's okay. We want to help people. We want to help ourselves. We don't want to be in that state, but it's not a sign of, of real problems because we're wonderfully and fearfully made, right? There's a lot of things that go into our emotional state. So why might we feel sorrow or depression or anxiety? Well, it could be an emotional problem. We could have had traumatic experiences that continue to plague us and, and keep troubling us, and we're just having a hard time shaking that off. It could be physical. There can be physical reasons for anxiety and depression. Our brain is a wonderful machine. It's an electrochemical machine that has all kinds of things going on in it. There's tons of chemicals that wash across our brain and make different things happen. And because we live in a fallen world, a, a creation that's been cursed, sometimes those chemicals get out of balance. And sometimes a person can be clinically depressed because of a chemical imbalance in their brain. And, and just telling them, hey, cheer up, everything's good, is not going to help. They might need to go to a professional to have drugs administered, try to help get that, that brain chemistry back in balance. The one thing that freaks me out is recently they've discovered that our gut bacteria has something to do with our brain. I'm serious. They, they, they're figuring out that the gut biome can affect our brain chemistry. So we are just a complex machine that way. The problem can also be spiritual. There can be spiritual aspects to this that would make us anxious or, or sad or depressed or lonely. Um, I don't believe that believers can be possessed by demons. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ dwells in us richly. There's no place for a demon. So I don't think believers have that problem where you, you look at somebody and say, you have a demon and you need to be exercised. It's not possible. You can't have both. But that doesn't mean that we can't have spiritual problems. We have been born again. Jesus has made us new creatures. He's given us a new heart. That heart has the law of God written on it, which means our hearts now are inclined toward obedience to God, to love towards God. So if we're living in a, a regular pattern of sin that we're unwilling or unable to let go of, it is in direct conflict with our nature. Our spirit is going to be unhappy. So it could be sin. There, there, that can be part of the problem, but it's not the, the whole answer necessarily. What we're going to see when we get to the spiritual conflict is that angels and demons can have an effect in the lives of people. And so we could be bothered by, not possessed by, but bothered by demons. They're, they're, they can have some involvement in that. It could be that we're not worshiping the things that we're supposed to worship. We can get idols stuck in our heart, authority, 
money, position, family, good looks, all sorts of things, intelligence. And we can make those become idols where what I mean by that is those are the things we go to to affirm us, to tell us that we're okay, we're good. Is I, I, I'm smarter than these other seven people, therefore I must be a better person. Well, you can be really smart and damned to hell for eternity. There's a long list of them. So if you make it an idol, that can have that unsettling spiritual part of your life. So it could be emotional, it could be physical, it could be spiritual, and sometimes it can just be circumstantial. Life has just fallen apart around me. Jesus himself in John 16 verse 33 said, in this world you will have tribulation. There's a promise to cling to. When you need something, you can promise, Jesus is promising you will have tribulation. We'll come back to that verse. There's more to it than that. But the point is, it could just be that things around you have crumbled, not because of your sin, not because of your emotional state, not because demons are coming after you. It could just be, my life's a wreck right now, and it's not my fault. My car got stolen. It's somebody else's sin that I'm suffering with. Those kind of things. So when you are counseling somebody, when you're, when you're trying to pray for somebody, when you start feeling these things yourself, don't always immediately head to, it's sin. I must be sinning, otherwise I wouldn't feel bad. Don't immediately head to, it's got to be a demon. The demon's after me because I feel bad. It, there's a number of reasons. You're much more complex. But look to Daniel. Daniel felt this mourning in his soul, and what did he do? He cried out to God. He fasted and he prayed. And what did God do? God sent him an angel. So that's, that's our, the conflict that we can experience internally. And I said that part of it could be spiritual. So let's take a look at the next section. Verses 10, 13 through 11, 1. It's kind of a long section. It has to do with uh, us, what we would call spiritual warfare. And I just want to warn you, Christians get weird on this stuff. We can come up with some really interesting ideas about it. So what I want to do is I want to hew really close to the text and just say, what are we learning here? And not try to extrapolate a whole bunch from it. Um, part of the problem is it's a fascinating subject. We can, ex we can really come up with some great theories. Uh, there's a healthy warning, though, from C.S. Lewis in the book, The Screwtape Letters. And Lewis said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their, their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So I love that he calls the one who denies the existence of devils materialist. We go, yep, that's it. And the other one he calls a magician. So what we want to do is we want to hear what the word has to say and not become magicians. So let's take a look. So to do that, I want to ask three questions. Who are they? There's a handful of people that are listed in this section. Who are they? What do they do? And what does it have to do with us? So those are the three questions. So who are they? Well, I had pre previously said that Daniel was uh, visited by an angel. So let me, let me describe this angel. This is verses 5 and 6 from uh, chapter 10. Daniel says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz about his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the radiance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. 
his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like a sound of a multitude. So the problem is, in all of this section, Daniel only refers to him as this man. He never says this is an angel or this is an appearance of God, and so we're left to theorize. And so some people say that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus had come to visit him himself. And that's not a bad inference, because if you look at Revelation uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, when John sees the, re the resurrected Christ, he describes him in very similar terms. There's a lot of the things that are, that are uh, very similar to it. Um, I don't think, it, in my personal opinion, it's not Christ. I, I could be wrong, and you could be right, and it would be okay. Who it is is not so important. Uh, but the reason I don't think it's Jesus is for one reason. In verse 13, he says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of, my chief, one of the chief priests, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Um, we're going to see in a minute, that's a demon. And this demon withstood him for 21 days. When Jesus Christ became incarnate, when he put on humanity to added to his divinity, and he ran into a demon, did any demon ever withstand him? They pleaded with him, but he said, shut up, and they were quiet. He said, out, and they said, please don't send us to the pit. Can we go in those pigs instead? There was no withstanding. There, there was no time Jesus met a demon and wrestled with him. He simply said, out and go, and that was it. So I don't think this is Jesus pre-incarnate because of the way that he, he explains what he's been up to. So I could be wrong. It could be a, a way of explaining the, the warfare that was going on, but that's, that's my take. So... Um, I think this is an angel, and uh, so this is an angel, and he explains to Daniel uh, what we can't see. He, he explains to Daniel that there's something going on that we can't understand, verses 12 through 14. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision of, for the days yet to come. So the first guy I'm, I'm assuming is an angel. So who are these other folks? Uh, the first one is um, somebody he calls Michael. Now, Michael, there are plenty of Michaels in the Old Testament who are not angels. Um, there's, there's a handful of, of names listed there. But I'm pretty sure that this Michael is an angel. And the reason is not because of the Old Testament, but because of the New Testament. When we look forward, we hear of Michael again in Jude 9 and again in Revelation 12. We'll meet Michael. And, and Michael is not just an angel, he's an archangel. So in this case, he's not just a prince, he's a chief of the princes. So that sounds like that's who Michael is, is he is this, um, this, uh, this angelic being who comes to help the other angel. Now, the next one is, it says, the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. So who is the prince of the king of Persia? Is that a human being or is that an angel? I'm pretty sure it can't possibly be a human being. Human beings have a long history of utterly failing when they try to resist angels. They just, it doesn't go well. 
This is a story that's told in Isaiah 37, verse 36, and in 2 Kings 19, verse 35. And the angel of the Lord, one angel, went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. When you try to resist an angel, you lose badly. One angel took out 185,000 overnight. So I don't think the prince of Persia is a human being. So who is he? Well, it's possible. I think the best explanation would be he is an angel, but he's not a good angel. He's a fallen angel. So there is a, an angelic force that is called the prince of Persia, and he's resisting what, um, what the unnamed angel and Michael are trying to do, and so they come and they're fighting with him. Um, there's another prince that's mentioned, the prince of Greece, and so that is probably some demonic force that is, is um, trying to do things in Greece. And so that, I think that's what the other one is. Um, so that's who they are. What are they doing? How is it that these angels are an angel of Persia, or a demon in charge of Persia, and, a, and a Michael is the prince of your people, is what he's called. So what do they do? How do they influence things? Well, this is where Christians can get, get a little weird. We can, we can kind of get off on this uh, and, and go in strange ways about spiritual forces and this and that and the other. If we stick really close to the scriptures, though, it's, it's actually kind of an interesting picture. Consider Job for a moment. In Job chapter 1, Satan goes before God and says, hey, yeah, I can get Job to hate you. Just let, him, let me have him. In chapter 2, God says, you can do this, but you can't hurt him. So you can do these things, but you can't touch the man. And so what Satan is somehow able to do is he's able to redirect a storm out in the desert to come in and hit one of Job's son's house and kill everybody inside, which is all his children. Now, I don't think, this is just my theory, I don't think Satan was able to create the storm, but he appears to have been able to redirect it and send it over to where Job's uh, family was. Um, and then the next thing that happens to Job is he gets word that the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans came and stole all his livestock. So somehow Satan was able to redirect the, the uh, Sabaeans and the Chaldeans to go, hey, he's got stuff, go take it. I don't think he drug them over there and made them go steal it. I think he just kind of brought their attention to where it was, and they went, hey, that looks good, we'll take that. And then the last one that happens to Job is the fire from heaven falls on the last of his herds. Now, I, I take the fire from heaven to be lightning. So again, if he didn't create the storm but redirected the, the wind, maybe he didn't create the lightning but redirected it and took out the, the sheep. So what Satan is not able to do is come in and tell and, and make and force Job to hate God. Nobody's able to do that. He can set up the circumstances by which Job could get mad and hate God. His wife says, curse God and die. His friends go, well, you must have done something wrong. But Job maintains his integrity through all that. So I think that paints a picture for us. What is the satanic influence in the world, the demonic influence that can happen in the world? Um, it can be possession, but when you look at possessions, you don't get somebody really coherent. Um, the, the, the guy in the tombs was cutting himself and breaking chains and running around. He was a madman. There was a demon possession where somebody was mute, and he cast out, Jesus cast out a mute demon. 
So there's, there's instances where they're able to take over a person in a way, but not to make them intelligent and coherent and, and, and do intelligent things. It just kind of makes them crazy. So it seems like this angel of Persia, and, or this, this prince of Persia and this prince of Greece are in there using circumstances and influencing people to try to frustrate God's purpose for, for Persia. What's he doing? I don't know, but maybe he's trying to get the king killed early so that a different king will come in, and, and that way when um, Alexander shows up, he'll be ready for him, or he won't be ready for him, or who knows. But they're trying to influence the affairs in those countries, and these other angels are coming in and saying, no, you can't do that. God's got a purpose, and it's going to take place. So that's what they're doing. What's it got to do with us? Well, once again, it reminds us God is sovereign in the affairs of man. That prince of Persia can only do so much. God has already pronounced four times for us before this point exactly what is going to happen. We'll hear about that in the next section. And his purpose will not be frustrated. So yes, this demon can try to do those things, but God has dispatched not one but two mighty angels to make sure his purposes are carried out. So what does it have to do with us? It reminds us that no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what we're facing, human opposition, demonic opposition, God is still in control of it. God is still ruling the nations. So that's, I think, the best way to understand how that affects us. One last thing in this, and in how this affects us. Prayer. Daniel is praying, and God answers by sending angels. One of the things you often hear is people will sometimes pray about, we're, we're calling down this angel, and we're binding that, that demonic force, and we're going to do... That's not really within our power. It's God's power to do that. What we do is call out to God, and God answers. So um, this is one of those places that it gets a little weird sometimes, is we're, we're piercing the heavenly realms, and we're calling down this angel to do that, and we're dispatching them here. It's like, dude, you don't have the power to do that. All you have to do, all the power you have is to call out to God and say, please bring these things about. Be faithful to your word, and, and he'll do that. So that's, that's the spiritual conflict. That's the spiritual aspect of conflict. The next one is conflict in the world. It's the biggest portion of this, this sermon, uh, almost all of chapter 11. And I'm just going to summarize it. The reason I'm going to do that is because, number one, it's long. Number two, it's a little detailed. And number three, we've heard it four times. We've been over this. God has been showing Daniel through visions and dreams over and over again the, the immediate future for him and his people. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 had a dream of a, an image made out of four types of material. And, and then in chapter 7, Daniel has a, a dream about four different beasts. And then in chapter 8, he has a dream about a goat and a ram. And then in chapter 9, so he, he just keeps telling the story over and over again. So we know it. So let me just summarize really quick. We're currently in the Medio-Persian Empire. They had beaten up and kicked out the Chaldeans and taken over Babylon. So they're now in charge. But what Daniel is told repeatedly is they're not going to be in charge for long. There is coming one from Greece who is going to charge through here and take over. And that's Alexander the Great. We know he's coming. What else it says in this section is what we've heard before about Alexander. He will achieve great power. He will sweep through this area, and then he'll die young. And when he dies, his kingdom will be split into four. And so that's, that's part of this image, and, and God is giving some details in this. And then out of those four kingdoms, one will arise, 
who will terrorize God's people. That's Antioch the four, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. And we covered him. He's a, he, is, he was a bad dude in history. He just was really horrible. And so that's the story that he's told again. But um, when we hear that, we hear God pronouncing a century before it happens exactly who's going to come. And in this section, he details it in a way that says he's going to go here and he's going to go there and this is going to happen and this person's going to oppose him and all of those kind of things. So a real quick question before we press on. When we looked at the other images, they were really confusing because it was a bear who was raised up on one side with three, three um, ribs in its mouth, and then it was a leopard with four wings and, um, and you know, animals with numerous heads and horns and everything. And at the time, I said, why doesn't God just say, look, here's what's going to happen. It's going to be this and then this and then this. Well, he just did. He got to it for you. So if you want a, a clear you know, accounting, this is the place to go. Why would he do the other things then? It's what I said before, I will repeat it again. He wants us to feel, not just know, but to feel how dangerous these nations are. How, how incredibly powerful these folks are as they're raging across the globe, as they're, they're dominating and fighting each other. They're a lion. And what I said at the time is, you know, we think of lions behind plexiglass and aren't they cute? Go jump over the wall and see how cute it is. It's a terrifying beast. And, and there's, I just read a story this week, a guy in Alaska at an old mining camp um, was attacked by a bear. The bear came back every night for like four or five days and kept attacking him. He was down to two bullets and almost starved to death. Bears are scary. They're not Winnie the Pooh. And so we're supposed to see this and go, these are terrifying nations. We're supposed to feel that. And then once we've got the feel, once we've got the emotional backing saying, this is dangerous stuff, then we get the details. And so that's what I think God has done. Now, conflict in the world, we know that. We, we have felt it. We have lived through it. It has happened since the Battle of Hastings all the way to 9-11 to Afghanistan, which we're trying to pull out of now. We are well aware of the nation's warring. It, it has happened since the beginning. It's going to continue happening, and, and we're just living in it. We know that that's how it goes. Even during the Cold War, it was still the Battle of the Nations. And so that's, that's why I just feel like we can go, yeah, there's conflict in the world. Now the good news. Let's get to the final part, the, the part that brings it all together. How does this all get resolved? How does this all come? Well, in verse, chapter 11, verse 36, something different happens. Up to that point, we can pretty much marry up what we know of history with the story as it's told in chapter 11. But in chapter 11, verse 36, things change. Nobody fits this description. We're not sure exactly how that lines up. So what's going on here? Um, some people claim this was a mythologizing, big technical term of Antiochus Epiphanes and carrying him forward. It's like, yeah, we've got the clue. God has given us the template. Remember how we've been reading these visions so far? They, they keep stacking up and telling us more and more. So we know who this is. Who came after um, the, the beast that couldn't be described with 10 horns? A little horn came up out of that, didn't it? And it terrorized, it wore down the saints. And at the time we looked at that, we said that was the Antichrist, the beast from Revelation, the man of lawlessness, the little horn. And so if we follow the template, we've got all those kingdoms, and then we get to this one, this has to be the Antichrist. And so that's why I think we're looking forward to, we, we, we don't get much of a, a hint that we've switched gears here, 
That's kind of the way prophecy works is we tend to see it kind of all collapse into one where it feels like it's all happening at the same time. But I think this, there's, a, there's a fair uh, case to be made. This is talking about the future. So let me read this part because this, this is a bigger section and it ties everything else together. So beginning in verse 36. Let me get to 36 here. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the god of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall pay no attention to other god, any other god, for he shall mag magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and ten thousands of, or tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become a ruler of the treasuries of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and to vote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This is Antichrist. This is, this is a picture, a description of, of what he's doing and what he's, he's going on. He is the king who shall do what he wills. What the Antichrist will be, what he will be like, is take all of the great kingdoms of the world, all of these tyrants who have raged across the globe. They have risen and they've fallen. They got to a certain point and they weren't able to keep, keep it going and they fell. When the Antichrist comes, he will be the, the summation of all of that. He will be the one who is successful. He will rage across the globe and do whatever he wills. He will be the one who is successful. He is what all of those other little ones have, have pictured and, and, and promised. From Antiochus to Domitian uh, to Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, Kim Jong-un, to the Taliban, to uh, Boko Haram, all of these people who are trying to rule the world, Osama bin Laden, have all been miniature antichrists as they've opposed the church and tried to take over the world. The antichrist will come, the man of lawlessness, the beast from the book of Revelation will come and he'll succeed. And he will terrorize the church. That's what we learned about antichrist in chapter 7 when we looked at that. He will terrorize the church. He will persecute us and hunt us down. And so that's, that's that idea. He is the king who does as he pleases. 
This is a New Testament concept. The New Testament picks up some of this language and draws it forward. So look at this. Daniel 11, verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And then he goes through and lists these other gods. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, speaking of the man of lawlessness, Paul says, it's he who oppresses, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship. Paul picks up the language from Daniel and says, this is the man of lawlessness, this is the one who's coming. Or at the beginning of chapter 12, I didn't read it, but let me just summarize it real quick here. Uh, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen uh, since there was a nation till that time. So there's this promise of this, this time of trouble. When Jesus talks about this in chapter 24 of Matthew, he begins his discourse and he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then he skips ahead and he says in verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. So Jesus seems to be pointing to this and picking that up and saying, look, this is what's coming. It, it's a miniature will happen when Jerusalem is destroyed, but there's one coming that, that will be that bad. And so this, this does fit with the Antichrist that was discussed in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 25, uh, the vision that, that uh, Daniel receives says, He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the laws, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So that, that king who does as he wills, I think he ties right back to chapter 7, that is Antichrist, that is the beast. So look at verse 40 for a second. There's something odd that happens. At the end of time, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind. Who's, who are these people? Who are these folks? It sounds like at this point they destroy the Antichrist. Um, it's a little confusing because there's... A, too many pronouns, essentially. There's him and him and him. So let me reread it and insert who I think it's speaking of. At the time of the end, the king of the south, whoever that is, shall attack him, the Antichrist. But the king of the north, the Antichrist, shall rush upon him, the king of the south, like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he, the Antichrist, shall come into the countries and overflow and pass through. And he, the Antichrist, shall come into the glorious land, Judah. So I don't think that's the end of him because he continues to rage. So I think that's what's going on. So how is this the consummation? How is this the consummation of conflict? How, how do we get from being worn down by the Antichrist, being persecuted, hunted down, and, 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 and destroyed by him, the answer comes in chapter 12. At that time, the end time, the time when, when the Antichrist has ra ravaged the lands, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen since there is a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and eternal or everlasting contempt. 
and those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the end of the time. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So what's the answer to conflict? What's the answer to all of this conflict? Well, let's kind of work our way backwards. Conflict in the world. It comes to its peak. It comes to its pinnacle in the arrival of the Antichrist. How is the Antichrist done away with? How, does he be, how is he defeated? What we learn in chapter 7 is there's one like a son of man who will come in clouds of glory and set up a judgment seat. One like a son of man, one who is like a human, but comes in the clouds of glory, travels as God travels. This human man who is divine will come. The answer to Antichrist, the answer to the nations raging is the return of Jesus Christ. And it says here that Michael will arise, the great priest, or the great prince of your people. Well, we learn more about Michael in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. Now, a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice in the heavens saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their own lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. Michael is involved in this. Remember the spiritual warfare in the heavenlies? Michael is triumphant. He, he throws Satan down. He kicks Satan out of heaven. Satan has no more access to God to accuse us. Did you know what Tim did last week? Did, did, did you see how rude he was to that lady? That poor little old lady. He, he, you can't have somebody like that. Did, did you see how... Sally was looking at that magazine and just, just dreaming about that house and, and how if she had a better husband, she'd have a better house. How can you have somebody like that in your kingdom? That's Satan's role. Michael shows up and picks him up and throws him out. He's gone. He's removed. The, the conflict in the heavenlies gets resolved when Jesus returns. Now, it's not over. We'll see that in a minute. It comes back. But that dragon, that beast, or that dragon is not the beast. He's not the Antichrist. He is Satan, and he's thrown down. Jesus takes care of the Antichrist when he comes. And so the promise here is, what about our personal conflict, conflict inside of us? How does that get resolved? The answer from Daniel is resurrection. We're made alive again. Right now, believer, you are half saved. You have been given a new heart, a new spirit. But did this stuff change at all? It gets old, wears out, but it, it didn't change. It wasn't like you looked like somebody different the day you got saved. You're, this didn't change. We're waiting for that day. That is what Paul calls in chapter 8 of Romans the, the, our adoption as sons, the resurrection, when we get new flesh. And then sin is completely done. Our body is not le- leaning towards those sinful things anymore. It now agrees with our heart. 
the good we want to do, we actually get to do. And the bad we don't want to do, we don't have to do. So that internal conflict that we face gets resolved in the resurrection. There are those whose names are found in the book of life, and they will arise to everlasting life. So Jesus shows up, and he takes care of the Antichrist, chapter 7 of Daniel. Michael shows up, and he takes care of Satan temporarily, Revelation 12. And our own internal conflict is when we're raised again from the dead. We're resurrected, and now it's all okay. So here's what happens. Jesus is going to return, and he will defeat the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the picture of all human institutions that have tried to rule the world for good and for evil. He puts them all away. The, The Antichrist is destroyed. And Jesus instead establishes his kingdom. That was that rock that was taken out of the mountain, not by human hands, that crushed the feet of that that image, and it began to grow and fill the whole world. Well, Jesus will return and establish that kingdom. We will have the benevolent dictator that we need. Justice, peace, prosperity will flourish because we will have a ruler who loves us so much that he died for us. Now, what will happen in that interim time is not everybody will be saved. It won't be this this paradise on earth where everybody's all nice and great and everything. But it'll be much better than it is now because Jesus will be ruling these folks. When Satan is cast down, he's thrown into a bottomless pit for a period of time. And at the end of that time, he's released. And this is the part that people really have a hard time believing. So folks have lived on earth for a long time. Let's call it a thousand years. Under the rule of a resurrected Jesus, they have seen saints who they know have died, been resurrected, and are ruling with him. And you're telling me they're going to revolt against that? That Satan's going to get released and they're going to revolt against that? Of course they're going to revolt against that. I don't want Jesus to be in charge. I want to be in charge. And so Satan shows up and he stirs that stuff up again. And that's when it ends. We ride out with Jesus on horses, and we stop, and we don't do a thing. We watch as he goes out to the battle and destroys his enemies. And then judgment comes. The the, the throne is set up, and, and people are raised the second resurrection. They're raised, everybody, sinner and saint, and judged. And if their name is found in the book, they're saved. And if not, they're cast into the place that God created for Satan. And Satan's cast into the place God created for Satan. And sin is cast into that place. And death is cast into the place. And then that whole place is cast into a sea of fire. Do you get the picture? It's utterly removed. So between now and then, we struggle. The nations rage. That's what Daniel has shown us over and over again. The nations rage. We suffer internally. We have conflict within ourselves. We have conflict amongst ourselves. And it hurts. And it's difficult, and we don't want that, that to, to continue. We want it to be resolved. And then the part that, since we're Christians, we're supernaturalists, we say there is actually another part of this creation we can't see. And there's conflict there as angels are warring back and forth, trying to make sure that this orderly, this, this created order happens the way God called it. And so all that, all that struggle, all that turmoil, all that strife comes to a crashing end when Jesus Christ returns. So can we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, 
Anybody love conflict? I personally, I'm really bad at conflict. I hate it. I do it poorly. And I want it to be resolved. So when you look around the world and you see the politics and the economics and the, um, the, the, the worldview warfares and stuff, believer, you can look at it and go, it's been like that since the beginning. It will be like that until Jesus returns. But Jesus is returning. The conflict will be resolved. That's what Daniel was told. That was the picture that he was given. As he's in turmoil about Jerusalem, his answer is huge. Yeah, we'll get that done. But that's minor. That's only temporary. Look what, look what happens in the future, Daniel. Be of good courage. Be strengthened. It, it, it's coming. And so, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. That's what the angel told him. You know what? That's what the angel's telling us. Oh, beloved, don't be afraid. Be of strong and be of good courage. And Jesus' answer is, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's not the end of the verse. But fear not. I have overcome the world. The conflict will be resolved. Maranatha, Lord, come please. Let's pray. Lord, we await your coming. And, uh, and we are not putting our hope and our confidence in the political theories, the economic policies, the, the worldview understandings. Lord, we're putting our hope in a person. And we're trusting, Lord, that you will come and resolve our conflicts. So, Lord, please come soon. Be with us in the meantime. Send your angels to watch over us, to protect us, to answer our prayers at times. And, Lord, may we trust in you while the nations rage, while the angelic host is at war, and while we ourselves inside are turmoil. May we continue to trust in you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
To begin with, uh, if you want to reach in front of you, there's a communication card. Uh, if you want to be added to our e-news to find out what's been going on in the church, uh, prayer requests can go on the back. Uh, if you're going to go to the ordination celebration, um, you can RSVP on that. Um, it's, it's a card for communication. It's a communication card. There you go. So I wanted to thank everybody who came out last Friday for third Friday prayer on the fourth Friday of the month, because uh, we have five Fridays this month. So thanks for coming. Our next one will be August 20th at 7 o'clock in the hallway, uh, in the hallway, in the room across the hallway. And I mentioned my ordination celebration. That's going to be Thursday, August 5th. Dinner is going to be served at 6 p.m., and then we'll have the celebration starting at 7.30. So if you're new to Trinity or you're old-timer here, if you've been here for a while, we're no, nobody's old. Um, you're all welcome to, to come and celebrate. It's just a chance for us to get together and party, really. Um, but uh, I was finally ordained with the Evangelical Free Church, and so it's just a, an excuse to celebrate. So uh, 7.30, as I said, please RSVP. We need to know how much food to order, uh, so we need to know that. Um, the landscaping out front should hopefully be mostly completed by that point. They kept shoving us off because of weather and other things. And so uh, I talked to him this week, and I was like, I want it done by the 5th. And so everything will be done except for one little portion. So hopefully our building will look nice out front, too. Um, there's a couple of important things coming up. So if you've got your calendar, get ready to write it down. Uh, the Crumb Rise will need help packing up the moving pods, you know, the, the things you load up. Um, their pods are going to be delivered to the house the same morning as the ordination celebration. So Ramey's going to have a lot going on that day. Um, so that's August 5th, and they're going to need help loading them. They've been boxing stuff up, but we need to haul the stuff out of the house and into the pods. And then on Friday, August 6th, there'll probably be some more cleaning, maybe some finish up of all of that stuff, get it wrapped up. And so they could use some help uh, with finishing that up and cleaning the house um, because they need to be out of it because they sold it. So if you're able to come, please uh, join us for that. Well, you can talk to Ramey. He can tell you where, where he lives and uh, get that going. The other date that has to do with the Crumb Rise is their going away party. Um, we're not going to let them just sneak out the door. We are going to party with them first. So that will be August 22nd, right after the service. So we'll have a worship service, and then we'll get some food. And then after we eat together, we'll have some time to uh, remember the Crumb Rise, the great things. They've been a huge part of this church for 20-something years. And so we want to celebrate and remember those great times we've had together. Uh, we'll have a time of worship, and then we'll, we'll lay hands on them and send them off to their next assignment that Jesus has called them to. So that's August 22nd. Um, lunch, worship, no sign-ups. Oh, you could communicate. If we had a piece of paper that you could communicate on, uh, you could let us know if you're planning on coming to that so we know how much food to order, okay? Um, please pray this week for the team as we get ready. We're going up to Paradise to help with the cleanup. So be, please be praying for us. Um, we're, we want to be a, a partner, but also a blessing to the free church up there. And more importantly, we want to represent Christ to the community. Um, it would just be wonderful to have people go, who are you? <laughs> Why are you here? And to be able to say, hey, we're just we're doing what Jesus told us to do, to come and help. So that's, that's what's happening. So this week, we've got a lot going on this week, too. Tonight, Sunday Night Leftovers, um, that's a time of fellowship at the Stromberg House. Uh, we eat together. That's, there he is right there. Uh, we eat together, and then we open God's Word and just, what do you see? What are we reading here? What's going on? So that'll be tonight. Uh, at 5.30, we'll eat and then um, have some time to, uh, to uh, study God's Word. 
Tuesday night, 6.30 to 8.30, there's a women's Bible study. They're going through the book of Mark. Um, and what they're doing is read the section, the, the story. And the big technical term is the pericope. And you can always tell somebody who's a reader because they'll pronounce it pericope. And you know how I know? They pronounced it pericope until I heard pericope. It's, it's just a story. So read whatever that story is. And then they have a set of questions they ask. What do we see? What does it mean? Who's involved? And how does it apply to us? And then they spend some time praying for each other. So it's a great way to just dive into the Bible and, and just let the word speak. So Tuesday night, 6.30 to 8.30. Um, if, again, use the communication card if you're interested. Uh, they've been doing kind of a blended thing with Zoom and hopefully begin to transition to an in-person one. Uh, so that's Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, there is an in-person women's Bible study at Linda Conrad's, Conrad's house. So um, if you're interested, please see Jeannie uh, or Jen for the address. And, um, and that's at 9.30 in the morning, uh, 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 Bible study that way. Thursday, uh, Thursday, there's a family fellowship group that meets at the Reese's home. They're not here today. Oh, well, one of them is. So uh, there's a Reese here uh, at 6.30, and they're going through the book of Esther. So um, Kevin's not here, so see Matthew if you need uh, directions. Um, and next Sunday, I think this is the last announcement, next Sunday, after the service, we're going to do something we call Meet Trinity. Um, what it is is just an informal lunch. We'll, we'll bring some food. We'll meet in my office. We'll sit down and eat together and just get to know each other a little bit. It's a time to talk about Trinity. What's this church about? Who are we? You can ask me all the pointed questions about what I skipped in chapter 12 and you know, that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a time to just sit and get to know each other. We'll introduce the church to you. Have a family or two from the church join us so you'll be introduced to them as well. So uh, if you're interested, there is a checkbox on the back for Meet Trinity. So if you could let us know, we'll know how many sandwiches to make. Uh, we can provide childcare if it's needed. And uh, so that's our announcements. A lot going on, huh? You want to sign up for the e-news so you don't have to listen to me read all of that. You can, you can get it in your email, in your inbox. So can I ask you to rise for our benediction? And the benediction comes from the book of Revelation because I think that's where this whole thing resolved. Chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen.